0: This week, on Myths and Legends, it's a fairy tale from Egypt. You'll learn the best comeback to get out of all those promises you never made, and how genies can be anywhere. Seriously, absolutely anywhere. The creature this time is a pair of giants who love humans. Maybe a little too much. This is Myths and Legends, episode 259, Butter. This is a podcast where we tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you might think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Today's story comes to us from Egypt in the Middle Ages, and it starts with a very thin-skinned monarch who just wants to make sure all of his people love him all the time. How can I tell if my people love me? The king asked his chief advisor, the man, the vizier, thought about it. Well, that was tricky. He guessed they could get some opinion polls going. They'd have to hire some statistician. Wrong answer. Ha <laughs> ha. The king boomed. Like for most of his questions, the vizier realized that the king already knew the answer or thought he did. The answer to how to tell if people loved you was, of course, lights out. whole city, boom. All the candles, fires, torches, snuffed out. Put out the criers now. Let them know to make announcements all over. Early on in his career, the vizier might have noted that that didn't test love so much as blind obedience. But now he was in kind of a run-down-the-clock situation, trying to make it to his retirement and pension without being banished or burned alive. So he just smiled. At his boss's new cockamamie scheme, and went to go tell the criers to stretch and warm up their vocal folds. They had a long afternoon ahead of them. That night, when 8.30 rolled around, the vizier snuffed out his own candles and heard a slow clap. You passed the test, good sir, he heard in the sonorous baritones of the king at his doorway. He turned around and found the man, ready for a night out. The vizier said, oh, cool. What did he get for obeying his king? Oh, what? Uh, not executed. Fun. And why was the king dressed like that? Also, tactical turtlenecks can be tricky if um if you haven't worn them in a while. Then you might not realize that they don't fit like they used to. The king laughed at his vizier. Well, that sounded like a vizier problem. All of his servants told him he resembled a better-looking combo of James Bond and Sterling Archer, which they said was definitely true and not just something they were saying to keep their heads. Their words, suspiciously exactly. The king turned in the doorway. The man had five minutes to get dressed, though, or else the king would have him burned alive. Just kidding. Or am I? Who knows? The vizier got dressed and asked questions later, with the king informing him, as they walked through the darkened streets, that he needed the vizier to come along, to take notes on who he needed to execute in the morning for not loving him enough and for disobeying his order. But it looked like no one would have to die for the king's fragile, fragile ego. Until, in the more remote regions of town, the king and the vizier saw a light glowing. The king's head drooped. Looked like he wasn't loved by absolutely everyone in this city. And that was such a realistic, healthy, and attainable goal. Welp, let's go see who needs to die. The vizier noted the address, while the king crouched at the window and, uh, huh, all right. Inside, there were three sisters, three young women, all sewing by the faintest of candlelight. And they were talking about, well, they were talking about the king. So, if I was to marry the king, the oldest sister said. The king smiled. He liked this subject already. I would bake him a cake that would be big enough for him and his army. The king said, wow. That was loyalty. That was love. He slapped the vizier on the chest. He could learn something from her. The vizier rolled his eyes and said, how? By baking him a giant cake and being an attractive young woman? Sure, he'd get right on that. The second sister, needle-weaving through her work in the dim light, said that if she was to marry the king, she would weave him a carpet to seat him and his whole army. The king grinned and rubbed his hands together. Ooh, that was even better than the cake. How? the vizier mouthed. But the third, the youngest sister, spoke up. If she was to marry the king, she would bear him two children. One would be named Sit-el-Hasun, meaning Mistress of Beauty, and the other would be named Clever Muhammad. Their hair would be of gold and silver, and she stopped, when both of her sisters also stopped sewing and just stared at her. They said she always did this. She always had to one-up them. The king nodded outside. All right, he'd seen enough take down their address and grab them in the night, black bag over the head, drag them through the street, in the dungeon, and he wanted to see them in his throne room the first thing in the morning. The vizier woke late the next morning, 7.15. He shrieked, kissed his wife, and rushed for the palace. Oh, man, he was so dead. Like, he might actually literally be dead. As he thudded on the sandstone, he heard yelling. Oh, it was one of the women. The vizier entered the throne room to the scariest thing he had ever seen for the person who was supposed to be managing this situation. The eldest sister was up in the king's face. She was saying that he didn't know what it was like out there. He who had been born into luxury. She and her sisters... They were orphans from orphaned parents. The sisters had no one. So every night, they stayed up late and worked so that each morning they could go out and sell their works. That took most of the day. And with what little money they were able to scrape together, they spent almost all that on supplies and the rest on food so that they didn't starve. If they took a night off for the king's sad little fee they would die. This wasn't a game. So she was sorry that the little man who had Dozens of people on the payroll to tell him how loved he was, wasn't happy. But she and her sisters wouldn't die. So that hole in his heart could be filled for half of a second before he needed more validation. The king grew red. The court looked at each other. What should they even do here? The vizier, out of breath, rushed up and stood between the sister and the king. He was so sorry he was late. He would take care of all this. Want him to put the boots to her and her sister's, huh? He would have the guards put the boots to them. That would make his king who everybody loved happy, right? Violently quell sedition? Then a nap? He loved his naps. The king, whose gaze was fixed on the sister, turned to the vizier, with a look that the man felt might actually bore through him. He asked what she said. Is this true? The vizier half paused for a moment and in that time the king saw what his people truly thought of him his head dropped he turned back to the sister no one had ever spoken to him like that she was forgiven of the crime of leaving the light on so she would not starve but he did have something to ask her The wedding day of the king and the eldest sister was a grand occasion. The vizier was a little surprised. Not that he didn't think the epiphany would stick, but no, yeah, he thought the women would be dead by sundown, and the status quo would be restored. But they weren't. A week later, the king and the oldest sister were married, and honestly, it had been a good week. The king was a thoughtful and understanding monarch, there was a healthy work-life balance, respect, it was nice. Then, The wedding night. The vizier awoke to the king pounding on his door. Divorce! I want a divorce! The vizier sat up and let the king in. He had been married for 15 minutes. He was wrapped in a bed sheet. What was going on? The king forced his way in and sat down, saying that things had been going pretty well. He had been alone with his new wife in bed, and he had um, a request. The vizier asked if he really needed to hear this. Should his kids be in a different room? But the king continued. The night they had been hiding outside the windows, the oldest sister said that she would make a cake big enough for him and his army. He wanted her to do that. And you know what she said? The vizier said he could guess, because the king was here in a bed sheet. She said, and I quote, Night talk is covered with butter. It melts when the sun rises. The vizier nodded. That was pretty good. Descriptive, diffusing, clever. Eh, what a catch. Nope, not for me, the king said. He was divorcing her. Have her dragged to the pit where they burned people alive and burn her alive. The vizier said that he didn't know if he was overstepping here, but the king asked him that the next time he said something like that. The king exhaled and rocked forward. Okay, okay. He wouldn't straight up have her executed, but he was divorcing her. Idle talk with your sisters when you don't think someone's listening in? That's sacred, man. He couldn't remain married with that breach of trust. The vizier pinched the bridge of his nose. Well, it was nice of the king to meet in the middle like that. Would be better if he stayed married and worked through it and This would create a headache for the vizier and his guys because there was literally no legal route for the king for divorce that didn't involve execution, but they would figure something out. Good, because in the morning I want to marry her younger sister, the king said, rising and leaving. The vizier sighed. The epiphany might not have worn off, but it had definitely lost its sheen. Yeah, okay, sure, he would make it happen. The older sister understood why the middle sister accepted the proposal. Crushing poverty or being a queen? Not really a choice at all. The older sister understood, but she also wasn't sharing notes. So, when the middle sister ended up in the exact same situation, remember, she mentioned a rug for everyone and laughed it off with the same response, it ended the exact same way. Immediate divorce and planned marriage to the youngest sister. The good thing about the youngest sister's promise was that she had at least a few weeks until the pregnancy would be known, and a total of 40 weeks until she had to make good on her promise to have a boy and girl with equal amounts of gold and silver hair. This was probably the least likely of the king's desires to be fulfilled. The other things were just logistical questions. If you can bake a cake, you can probably bake a giant one. And the same probably goes with a rug. The last one either requires a ridiculous amount of prayers, luck, cutting-edge modern-day science, or the youngest sister to have an almost Bene Gesserit level of control over her reproductive system. But it happened. Or did it? The vizier was intercepting all messengers going to the king. It was the big day. He couldn't be bothered by matters of state, supplicants, anything. His wife was having a baby today, and as the attentive husband he was, he was down the hall while the midwife handled everything. The vizier saw a woman approach. She had pets? The vizier waved her off. The king didn't need a puppy and a kitten right now. Or ever. Puppies are a surprising amount of work, and there was going to be a new baby in the palace. The woman said there actually wasn't going to be a new baby. You see, this puppy and kitten, they were the expected babies. The queen gave birth to a puppy and a kitten. The vizier looked back to the room, where the king was shut up, pacing, awaiting news of the babies, and he left his post. He speed-walked down the hall and entered the room. Oh, hello. The woman's two sisters, the king's ex-wives, were both there, weeping. After the youngest sister became queen, she graciously and not at all inadvertently insultingly brought her two older sisters on as servants. They helped her through the pregnancy and said they were in the room when it happened. And she gave birth to a puppy and a kitten. Now, if the vizier would excuse them, they needed to run this box to the river. Unrelated, the vizier stood stroking his beard. Wow, this was just like one of those stories. He thought a woman giving birth to animals in the presence of her jealous sisters was just kind of like a lazy trope. But here it was, happening. If it hadn't been for the midwife witnessing it, he would be looking for the babies that had been switched out. He didn't know what he was going to tell the king, but he didn't have to. The vizier and the midwife turned to see the king at the door, frowning. I don't know how you make the logical leap, from your wife resting after giving birth, with a puppy and kitten running around smeared with the afterbirth, to that being the children to whom she gave birth, but he did. He told his vizier that when his wife woke up, he could tell her that they were divorced. This was terrible. He can't imagine anyone ever having a worse day than him. He left his unconscious wife, who he just divorced after she gave birth to animals, and ran off crying. We'll see that, surprise, things might not be what they seem, but that will be right after this. The fisherwoman looked to her husband. He was holding a box? He said that she knew how each day they found two fish in the river, right? One for each of them, and they viewed them as gifts from God? She nodded, yes, Uh, where was he going with this? He held out a wooden box that had been nailed shut. Today, God had given them the two fish and this. She shook her head, throw it back, it's trouble. He said it's a box, didn't she want to know what was inside? She said either it was money that they didn't need or evil that they didn't want in their old age. She took her husband's hands in her own. This was it. This is what they talked about. They were nearing the end. That's what they were both seeking after. A good end to a life well lived. He put the box on the table. Well, good end or no, this was from God. So they had to open it. Against her protests, he pried open the box and the wife crossed her arms. See? Trouble. The husband scooped the babies out. A boy and a girl. Each was sucking the other's thumb. "'Aww, they're suckling each other,' he said. "'Oh, no, that's not what that is,' the wife replied with a cocked eyebrow. "'Well, that's what one version says,' the husband's shoulder slumped. "'They're comforting,' she corrected. "'Soothing each other. Suckling is... but that's different.' She took the babies in her own arms and looked them over. "'Ah, darn it. She loved them. Somehow, despite all the names available,' the couple ended up on the exact same names that the mother had mentioned the night that they didn't put out the candles. The girl was named sit el Husun, meaning Mistress of Beauty, and the boy was Clever Muhammad. The new mother sighed. This changed their plans. Quite a bit. The elderly man put the arm that wasn't holding the baby around his wife. They could adapt. They were sorcerers, after all. It turned out, for the first year or so of the kid's life, Egypt was fairly rainy. No one really caught on. No one except the Fisher couple who realized that whenever Sit cried, it would rain. And it would only stop when she was comforted by her brother, Muhammad. And on this day, about 15 years later, she needed comforting too. Because their father, their father was dead. Muhammad skidded through the doorway. He saw the rain. What? Oh, the loss of their father had been as confusing as it was tragic, mainly because he told them, down to the hour, when he would die. Also, the entirety of their inheritance from him was two horse hairs. When the brother left the market, the mother turned to sit. She had something to tell her daughter. She would die soon. She had always been fated to die in this place, but she and the father had stretched the time for them, things could no longer be stretched without breaking. But she had something for her daughter. She pulled out her purse and she told her daughter that she and her husband had chosen this simple life together. They had each other, and that had been enough for them. But she acknowledged that the life she had chosen might not be the one that Sit and Muhammad would choose for themselves. Like their adopted parents, they were special too. They deserved a life where they could choose their own destiny. And that's what she was giving Sit. In the form of this empty purse. But it wouldn't stay empty, not for long. Each morning, the girl would find 10 coins in the purse. And the horse hairs the father left, the brother and sister only needed to rub those together and they would have whatever they wished for. With that, the mother died. And it rained throughout the city for days. the vizier was called in to meet with the king about a year later. Someone finally bought the lot next door, the king boomed. It was weird, right? That there was this vacant lot next to the palace for so long. The king said he always thought of it as like just his big lawn. He was actually really annoyed to find that he in fact did not own it. It Made him so mad he wanted to have the new owners summarily executed. So he tried to. Turned out the guy was, like, a reclusive rich guy who sat back and did nothing while his workers did his bidding. Could the vizier believe that? So, the king needed the vizier to go find out who the new owners were. He would be here, sitting back. The vizier nodded. Yep. He would have pointed out the double standard here, but but irony had long since died with the people who pointed it out to the king. The vizier didn't get much farther than the king did, the new owner of the place next door hired good people because they weren't talking. They were also very fast, and they had the new place up seemingly overnight. One day, when the king was out walking with his vizier, he took out his keys at his front door and... Th- oh, they they didn't fit. What the... He looked up to his house, and then his house. Double houses? Wait a second... The new owner of the lot next door had built an exact replica of his palace. The vizier walked over to one of the carpenters who were packing up. Uh, hi. uh, Unnamed vizier for the king? Yes. Uh, First, what's up with all this? This was the exact same palace. What was this going to do for resale value? Second, they now demanded to know who the new homeowners were. The builder shrugged and said that if they wanted to leave their information, he would pass it along. Not much else he could do. The king blinked. Yes, uh, his information was he was the king. No surname, lived right next door in a palace. Anytime the person wanted to stop by, he wanted answers. It was the next day that the king got a knock on his door from a young man, one with gold and silver hair. The king was just about to drop the new owner into whatever the medieval Egyptian version of a rancor pit was, but something about this kid he liked. He and the vizier asked the man inside. The king's advisor trailed behind them as the king asked how a kid so young had been able to afford a literal palace. The young man laughed. Oh, he and his sister had an unending bag of money they took a little bit from every day. The king pointed. This kid, this kid knew what was up. The king said he had one of those never-ending purses too. It's called taxes. He liked this kid. So did the vizier and So did everyone in the palace. The kid had an easy way about him that made everyone like being around him, and he spent a lot of time at the palace. And so, a few weeks later, it was very surprising to all that he was gone. The two older sisters, the children's secret aunts, figured it out. They had been visiting Sit and Muhammad, and they took a big interest in the kids, actually. So much so that one day, they had been invited over for drinks and told Sit all about the dancing bamboo. Muhammad had been listening from the kitchen. Dancing bamboo? Yeah, dancing bamboo. What was that? Well, it was pretty much explained by the name, and frankly, the sisters were surprised that such a beautiful palace lacked it. They didn't blame her, though. It was very hard to get, and she... The clouds began to form outside. And, you know, could it really be considered a palace without that? The drizzle started. They just cared about the girl. They didn't want people to think she was some kind of pretender. You know, that she didn't deserve the nice things she had, the life she lived. I mean, it wasn't like she was cast out, that this was the only stable home she had left. Right? Shame if anything happened to it. The girl said that she was sorry, but they would have to leave. She wasn't feeling well. The pair rushed out in the rain as Muhammad came in to comfort her. He heard it, too. He held her and the rain outside slowed. They weren't going to lose this home. They weren't going to be alone again. If they needed a dancing bamboo plant, he would find a dancing bamboo plant. Though he wished he knew how. And then he realized something. Wish. The horsehair. He came back and rubbed the two hairs together. He wished he knew how to find the dancing bamboo. He paused, and put his hands on his head. Would it like come to him, or... And then he heard a... Hi! Where am I? The brother shrieked. In the corner of the room sat an elderly woman. She looked down. Oh, the horse hairs. Cool. The brother stood, drawing the sword to side. Who was she? Oh, I'm sorry, were you just pulled screaming from a lunch with your grandkids, probably traumatizing them? The elderly woman asked. No? Cool. Maybe pump the brakes with the indignation. I'm an old friend of the man who owned those horse hairs. And if they summoned me here, it was for a reason. What do you need? Turned out, she did know the location of the dancing bamboo. She was an old sorcerer friend. Let's say. Full disclosure. In the original, they don't summon anyone with the horse hairs. In fact, a heretofore unmentioned old woman tells them everything they need to know. Like, I know people who have been on this earth many years generally are thought to be wise, but I guess this also applies to finding dancing houseplants. Anyway, it was kept in the garden of Father Ogre, who slept for seven years and was awake for seven years. She pointed Muhammad in the direction and told him to hurry it would take three years to get there. Hopefully, he arrived when the ogre was still sleeping. And so, Muhammad embraced his sister, thanked the elderly woman, and left on his quest. And three years later, as he stood outside of Father Ogre's walled garden, holding the dancing bamboo, he shrugged, huh? That was easy. And it was. He got in just before Father Ogre awoke from his seven-year slumber. And got out with the bamboo. Three years later, six years after he left from home, he returned with the bamboo. It was a little weird to have a plant dancing with him the entire time in his backpack, in his arms, and whatever. But he managed. He and Sit planted it in their garden, and they were happy, for a few weeks at least. The sisters saw the dancing bamboo, and started talking up the singing water. The sister cried, they ran home in the rain, and Muhammad said it was as if those servants from the palace knew their tragic backstory, where they had been abandoned by two sets of parents and had a deep, uncertain void regarding their place in the world. He would think that they were exploiting that to send him on dangerous quests. But how could they know that? All right, he would grab the horse hairs. Come and give your Grammy a hug, the sorceress said when she materialized in the room. Then she looked around in a half second of shock before turning to Muhammad and sit. Oh, it's you. Singing water? The elderly woman nodded. Mother Ogress, seven years sleep, three more years to get there, hurry, bye. And that too went the same way as the encounter with Father Ogre in that the encounter was non-existent. Muhammad got there before Mother Ogre woke up, stuffed the screaming water, that pleaded with him, please don't take it, this was its home, and it didn't want to go, into a bottle, and then rushed out of there, starting on the three-year journey back home. It was easier physically to transport the bottle, because it wasn't trying to invent flossing on the way home, like the bamboo tree, but it was a little more difficult emotionally, because the bottle just sobbed a lot, that it would miss its family, its puddle spouse, and all their little droplets. He came home to more storms. The sisters had convinced Sit that their brother was dead and that, to make her house complete so people wouldn't see her as a worthless phony, pretender who was nothing and would return to nothing without these things, not their words, just what they heard, she needed a talking lark. A bird who talked. Okay, Muhammad said, uncorking the water to join the dancing bamboo who danced to the water's voice. Muhammad rubbed the horse hairs together, and the elderly woman appeared. The talking lark. She shook her head. This was getting ridiculous. No one knew where the talking lark was, not even her, and Jean knew that. Sit and Muhammad looked at each other. Jean. She spoke directly to the horse hairs. Jean, get out here, the elderly woman said to the room. I know you're in there. I've been keeping quiet about this for like 12 years with these kids. Muhammad jumped at the sight that emanated from the horse hairs in his hand. And then a flash and a puff of smoke and there was a horse in the house. The horse turned to the sorceress. Really? She didn't know where the talking lark was. Muhammad and Sit said, uh, hi, you can talk? And also, you live in these hairs? Wait, rubbing them together? Was he a genie? Jean nodded and bowed to them. At your service, because I have to be. Muhammad asked why he had stayed in the hairs, teleporting this kind older sorceress here to answer questions each time. He said, uh, because I knew she knew the answers and would be cool about keeping her mouth shut. Jean, the horse genie, said to the elderly woman. Also, when people got gin, they got a little drunk on power. He liked to avoid that whenever possible. And you have to do whatever I command, Muhammad added. Yeah, that too, Jean admitted. He had hoped maybe Muhammad wasn't up on the lore. All right, well. How do I find the talking lark? Muhammad asked. The genie horse's head nodded. Get right to it, nice. Well, the talking lark was in the palace of Um Ishi Eor, the long-haired lady. Outside the castle, he would see sheep. He would need to take one of those sheep and cut it into four pieces because just outside the castle were two lions and then inside, two dogs. If any talk to him, he needs to ignore them because if he answers, they would tear him apart. Then, the long-haired lady, she would try to encourage Muhammad to stay. No matter what she says or does, Muhammad is not to answer her, or else she would turn him to stone. The horse added that he could take Muhammad to the palace, but he couldn't go in. He then immediately glanced to the sorceress with yet another, be cool, look. She was. Muhammad nodded. Getting him there was good enough. He had handled two previous fetch quests. He could do this too. That's how, the next day, Muhammad had been turned into stone. He cried out, when the long-haired lady taunted him, saying that he was the son of a king who had been sent to die by his aunts. We'll see who goes to rescue the brother, but that, once again... We'll be right after this. Hey, strange traveler! A horse in a field yelled out to a stranger. Then he winced as a ball hit his side. He appeared to shake a little bit. Maybe brush it off. Did the stranger want to be like... a sultan? Super rich? Want to have a swimming pool full of gold you could actually swim in? Hmm? The horse said. He knew the stranger was probably thinking that that would be too dense and that it would kind of hurt. Well, the stranger wasn't talking to any normal horse because, well, one, the horse was talking, but also because the horse was the son of the king of the djinn, and he had been ordered to stay here by his master, probably former master at this point. The genie would give the stranger instructions to go in there and fish some horse hairs out of the kid's stone pockets, and then they could do whatever. The stranger could be pure evil and go full Jafar. It didn't even matter. The horse had been standing in this field for six months and wanted to go home. The stranger approached and threw back their hood. The horse blinked. No way! It was her! The girl! Sit! She was dressed like a man. She traveled all this way? Wow. She had traveled the distance. It had been a long trip. She didn't have a magical horse to take her. And she only knew one direction the way that the elderly woman had pointed to go see Father Ogre. She knew her brother was in danger, and it was the only way. She locked up her house, disguised herself as a man, and started west. Peace be upon you, Father Ogre, she had called out before the Ogre's palace. A giant head popped up over the wall. Well, that was really nice. Yeah, come on in. Turned out, when it came to Ogre's you can kill them with kindness. Or not kill them at all, like Sit. It certainly helps to not jump over their walls and steal their belongings while they're waking up. Anyway, Father Ogre really responded to Sit's kindness. And over a light brunch he didn't touch because it was people, explained that though he wanted to help, he didn't know where the talking lark was. His brother, though, lived down the road a ways. And the guy was one day older and one year wiser than him. Sit didn't know how either of that worked and followed the instructions. Like some kind of folkloric pimp my ride meme, this is a quest of threes nested inside a quest of threes, so we'll just jump to the end. She did a Ted Lasso thing where she diffused each situation with kindness until she found her answer. Tennis, kind of. The last ogre gave her a ball and a racket. If she hit the ball with the racket and followed the ball, she would arrive at the palace of the fair-haired lady. Since pretty much nothing in Sit's life had been normal ever, she accepted this explanation, accepted the racket, and several hits later, it was bouncing off the genie horse. She followed the initial instructions, cut up a sheep, which was grisly business in itself, fed it to the dogs and lions, and then stood there while the lark, the long-haired lady wasn't present, told her the truth of her life. She was the daughter of a king. She had been betrayed. Still, Sit kept silent. The bird said it was tired, it needed to sleep, but it couldn't until someone commanded it to. Would someone command it to? This went on for like 10 minutes, but Sit waited, waited until the lark went into its own cage, and then Sit shut the door. In that moment, Muhammad turned back, and a whole nation's worth of people inside the walls, the story tells us, turned back from stone. It was over. They were free. As people filtered out of the castle, Sid and Muhammad found the genie horse, and Muhammad allowed it to move after six months. The brother and sister jumped on its back, and in a flash, they were back home, at the palace next to a palace. It was time to plan a party. free the vizier who was early to the party the following day heard muhammad say to a horse oh wow really the horse replied and then continued yeah you might want to wipe that self-assured grin off your face i'm not going to be all like oh thank you master for your kindness no dude you left me for six months rooted in that spot i ate grass there were predators storms winter you owe me The horse wrenched the two hairs from the young man's hands, muttered something about not needing any of this, and then galloped off. The vizier thought that there might be some context that he was missing, but it was party time. The invitations were very clear. Everyone was invited to this party for a bird. As the king approached, the partygoers heard a bark and a purr and looked down to see a dog and a cat. The king smiled, yeah, he wanted to bring his kids. He felt like he couldn't take them anywhere, though. They fought like cats and dogs, am I right? Ha. He said that he had to laugh about it or it would crush him. What kind of king begets a cat and a dog, the party heard. The king turned to the talking bird. Normally, the vizier would jump in between such an obvious challenge to his king, but he was so tired. The king could deal with this one. The king spoke up. It was God's will, apparently, that his wife give birth to a cat and a dog. So he accepted that and tried to live his life. Also, what kind of bird talks? Call the midwife, the bird demanded. The vizier watched the king puff up his chest, about to deliver his classic, Do you know who I am? tirade. But the king studied the bird. Okay, sure. Bring the midwife here. When the midwife entered the party... It said that her face was, quote, blue as indigo. She saw the children with their gold and silver hair and shrieked. The ants, the ants did it all. They commanded her to replace the kids with dogs and cats. The vizier, taking full advantage of the hors d'oeuvres table, nodded. Oh, that explained the box that they rushed out of the room that day. The vizier looked to his guards and then did that little twirly thing with his finger. Round up the sisters. They should be here somewhere the king would want a trial. But the king, who was definitely capable of regular legal justice, opted for mob justice and yelled out that whoever loved the prophet would set fire to the midwife and the ants, And they did. The king turned to his vizier amid the chaos. Hey, how about that? Huh? Didn't even have to have them executed. How's that for change? The vizier yelled back that he, he told the people to do it? The king said, oh no, you see, I put the idea out there, and they latched onto it. I can't be held responsible for their actions. I don't burn people alive anymore. I'm growing as a person. The vizier forced a smile as he scooped up another plate of hors d'oeuvres. Sure you are, bud. Sure you are. Then, amidst the screams of her sisters, the mother stepped out. The children, Sit and Muhammad, broke down in tears, but the sky didn't grow dark. It was joyful. After everything, they were reunited. But all the struggle hadn't been for nothing. Both of them could have gone back to their mansion and been just fine. The brother had traveled the earth, and he survived. The sister, when the need arose, struck out on her own and found a strength and bravery she never knew she had, and also learned that her instincts had value too. Just because people had always fought ogres didn't mean they always had to. Opening with kindness can apparently get you a lot farther than a spear throw. Still, for the first time since they lost their weirdly prescient parents, they felt like they belonged. They had a home. I really like this story for the characters, the secret genie, and the fact that despite having three ogres, a handful of sorcerers, and a witch, there was basically no action, and people found other ways to solve their problems than by stabbing them. The king is obviously the exception. He was still very much into executions, but kind of being passive-aggressive about them. Next week, we're meeting a bunch of people who love to solve their problems with violence, when we're back in the Icelandic sagas. Real quickly, we have a big announcement. You might know from the feed drop, but Chris and I have partnered with Cast Media to do a history show. It's hosted by us, and it's called Scoundrel, History's Forgotten Villains. We tell stories from history of real-life villains, and like in Myths and Legends, try to give you a feeling of the characterization and what it was like at the time. We've worked with an awesome sound designer and team to give it this deeply immersive feel, and we are super proud of the show. I really do think you'll like it. I put the links in the show notes, of course. Once again, that's Scoundrel, history's forgotten villains. And you can find out more by searching for Scoundrel wherever you get your podcasts or by following the links in the show notes. Thank you so much. The creature this week is an Inupasugasuk from the folklore of the Inuit people of Canada. The Inupasugasuk were big. They apparently ate whales like regular humans eat fish and their lice were as long as a man's forearm. That leads to a lot of questions for me. Like, did the humans get lost in their hair by accident and come upon dachshund-sized lice? I feel like a giant louse would be fairly aggressive, too. I mean, they're bloodsuckers. Also, did the lice get so big feeding off the giant's blood, or are there giant lice out there? Is that something we need to be worried about? Regardless, people might have actually been able to get in the Suck's hair, because they're... Really friendly to people. Kind of too friendly. You see, an Anupasugasuk couple, well, they wanted to spice things up. So they decided on a swap situation with a human couple that they were very friendly with. Things got weird. The whole act was, how does that work? But then things took an accidentally but And things got weird. And then accidentally fatal when things really kicked off. The giants were horrified. These were their friends. Friends with a certain level of benefits that weren't beneficial for anyone. Also, their human friends had a young child. A child that was now an orphan thanks to them. They did the right thing and adopted the boy. But things started to get out of hand there too, because in a few weeks, the boy was the size of a human man, and in a few months, he was well on his way to becoming a giant himself. The giants panicked and, freaking out, dropped him back off at his village. The village at least recognized all this kid had been through, and they tried to help, but they couldn't. He couldn't fit in any of the houses, and they had a hard time feeding him. He went back to live with the giants, munch on whales, and I would imagine the Giants stopped befriending humans after that. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more music in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.